Well, today we come to our final time together in the book of James. It's been a rich and challenging season going through this book, which has been at, the, at one and the same time sort of strident against our remaining immaturities and sweet to our souls as well, as James has brought us face to face with issue after issue of immaturity that still needs to be rooted out of our life. It's been a rich time going through this little letter. It was written for a generation of Christians who were facing trials like they had never faced in their life. And so the message resonates with so many of us who have experienced or are experiencing the same things, helping us to understand God's goodness, God's purpose, to understand how we should respond or how we should not respond in the midst of those trials. And so it's been a great book really to help us understand God and to understand ourselves better in the midst of all those difficulties. The church um, uh, that started in 33 AD in Jerusalem and for the first several years existed there, enjoyed a time of influence and growing population until some men took aim at their leaders and particularly at a man named Stephen, falsely accused him, uh, uh, smeared his name and drug him out and stoned him in the streets. After that event, persecution, of course, broke out against the church and scattered the believers as they went beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and really even Israel all over the world. They were scattered everywhere and they found themselves now isolated from their beloved church there in Jerusalem and, and even from their beloved leadership. James, who wrote this letter, was their former pastor in Jerusalem, and he wrote the letter to encourage them in the midst of these trials because he understood that they had lost uh, the support, if you will, of this local fellowship. And he wanted them to understand that even the things that had happened to them through the persecution, through the struggles, through the trials, even where they found themselves, wherever they were and whatever situation they were in, he wanted them to understand that they needed to count it all joy when they found themselves in various trials. He wanted to remind them to remain steadfast. He wanted to help them to understand God's ultimate justice when He returns. And as we reach the end of this book, he turns his attention to those who haven't fared so well in trials. You remember last week we looked at verses 13 through 18, where he talked about those who were suffering, needing to pray, those who found occasions of encouragement needed to sing, those who were weary, those who were weak in the midst of trial. They needed to call on their elders and their shepherds and their local congregations to uphold them. And the church needed to pray for one another. Well, now as we come to the final two verses of this book in chapter 5, he takes on the issue of one final group who would have been among this crowd. Those who ultimately wandered away from the truth. It could be that the situation was just maybe so challenging for them. It might be they just got so intimidated by the persecution. It could be that they just got so weary and so discouraged with the disappointments in life, they lost all hope. But for whatever reason, whatever the source or whatever the motive, 
they ultimately decided to throw in the towel and to walk away from the truth. And James wants to remind you and me that we have responsibilities to those who are in that kind of situation. We have to, we have to pursue those who abandon the faith or abandon the gospel or abandon the church. He says in verse 19 of chapter 5, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James clearly has in mind a group of people here who had previously belonged to the church. They previously had professed faith. He speaks about someone who was among you. So they associated with the believers. They associated with the church. But now they have wandered. They have strayed away. The word is planethe, from which we get our word planet. And, and it basically refers to those people that stray or wander, just like the planets, if you will, sort of wander across the sky. The, the ancients would look up and they would see the stars, but they would notice some of them are moving. And they referred to them as the wanderers, as the planets. Well, these are the professed believers who were now wandering from the truth. They were moving away from what they originally professed. And it's unclear what caused them to leave. The verb itself is potentially a reflexive verb, meaning that these people remove themselves or they cause themselves to go astray in whatever manner. But the word could also be passive. The, the form is not clear, meaning that they were led astray. Someone deceived them. In fact, that's probably the way the word is used most often in this particular form. It's used to people who are deceived, people who are, who are led astray. James even uses it that way back in chapter 1, verse 16, when he talks, uh, talks to us and warns us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So, so this word could have this idea that someone has been duped. They have been deceived. Maybe like chapter 1, they were deceived into thinking as they faced trials that God was trying to tempt them, that somehow God was uh, against them, or somehow He sends anything other than what is good and perfect. So perhaps someone came along and started to tell people in the midst of their difficulties that God had abandoned them, or God was against them, or whatever, and it caused them to stray from the truth. Or maybe they just strayed on their own. That happens. The Bible uses this word in a number of contexts throughout the New Testament to speak about people being led astray by greed, or being led astray by envy, or being led astray by malice, or being led astray by, by the fact that they have become slaves to pleasures in the book of Timothy. Whatever the reason, this happens. It happens. If you've been in the church very long, you've seen it happen, unfortunately. You've had to face the hard reality of these kinds of situations. You're always burdened down with sorrow because you see this happening. It has followed the church through the centuries. Every generation, all the way back to the times of the New Testament, has had to grapple with those who wander away from the truth. Jesus, remember, warned His disciples from the very beginning, if you abide in My Word, you're truly 
my disciples. But if you don't, by implication, then you are pseudo-disciples. Peter talks about those in 2 Peter 2, who after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are again entangled in those same defilements and are overcome. And the last state, he says, has become worse than the first. And he goes on to say, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that delivered that was delivered to them. Hebrews 6, a well-known passage, speaks about those who've once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. We've all seen it. I mean, if you have been in the church, as I said, any time, if you... If you knew Christ in high school, you saw some of your friends after they graduate wander away from the truth as they transition to adulthood. In your younger years, in your late teens, early 20s, if you followed Christ, you saw people as they entered into their careers or they began their families or whatever it might be, you saw them wander away from the truth. Some wander away from the truth later in life. After decades of profession in faith, the pressures of life, the disappointments of failed dreams, or just the monotony of of everyday existence just seems to sort of grind against them. Or it might be, even as James suggests here, that trials just cause them to wither away. Maybe they are duped by some false teacher or some leader. And it weighs on our hearts. It's like a cloud that that sometimes moves in in our otherwise joyful fellowship with the Lord and with one another. But James doesn't want you to just be caught up in that sadness. He doesn't want you to just sit back and sort of mourn over these situations, he wants to remind you and me that we have responsibilities. We have a call to action in these seasons when people are walking away. He wants to motivate us. He wants to remind us and motivate us to pursue those who are wondering by reminding us of the importance of this task and reminding us of the magnitude of what is at stake, the magnitude of what is accomplished when we pursue and hopefully restore someone who's wandered from the truth. And specifically, in this passage, these two verses, he gives us two points to press us into pursuing those who've wandered from the truth. The first one is this, we must share in the pursuit, or we might even say we must share in the responsibility of the pursuit of the wavered. We must share in the pursuit of the wayward. And you'll notice in verse 19 that he just gives us these conditional statements. He just just sort of gives us an if, but doesn't give us a then. In verse 20, he, he gives us more or another conditional statement before finally stating the result. But in the original language, 
It really is not even that clear. It's somewhat smoothed out in the English for us. But there's kind of an ellipsis here. There's kind of a broken thought here. And it's almost as if he gets lost in his thoughts as he spells out these conditions. If anyone wonders from the truth, and if any one of you turns them back. If, if, if. And he's just pondering the possibilities and just recognizing the possibilities. And his point is, the potential for wandering is there for any of us, first of all. And the responsibility and potential for rescuing the person who wanders is also there for any of us. Any of us could be, and every one of us should be involved in this work. Any of us might find ourselves in a position where someone close to us, where we are their closest contact, maybe within the church, or we have the best access to them, or we might happen to have some avenue of connection with them. Any of us could find ourselves in the place where God wants to use you as the instrument in bringing someone back to the church. You may remember in Genesis chapter 4, God had uh, just recently created man and woman, and they had given birth to children, Cain and Abel, and Abel out of envy and jealousy, strikes out against his brother, excuse me, Cain, out of envy and jealousy, strikes out against his brother Abel and murders him. And when God comes to Cain to ask, where is your brother Abel? You remember Cain responds with his own question. I don't know. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Kind of a classic attempt to shirk responsibility and put it back on God as if it's God's job alone to take care of all these issues. You don't have any individual responsibility. Well, you and I can be tempted into the same kind of attitude. We can have sort of the Cain mentality. When someone strays away, when someone wanders from the truth, we can, we can kind of ask ourselves in a dismissive manner, am I my brother's keeper? Well, James would say, yes, you are. You are. And he wants you to have this attitude. He has this clear expectation that any one of you could be placed by God in a position of reconciliation. And so we all must give some thought to this. We all have to be ready. We already saw back in verse 16 that we all have responsibilities to pray for one another as we're going through trials. We ought to be praying for those who are in difficulties. We ought to be praying for those who are, who are questioning their faith. We ought to be praying for those who are going astray. But we need to do more than that. We need to be ready to be used by the Lord. James says, if someone brings him back, if anyone, if someone, if any one of you, it could be any of you, the word is indefinite. It's not necessarily the job of just the pastors or the elders or the deacons. In fact, in many cases, those who are straying from the church put up some of their biggest guard against their former leaders, against their pastors, against their, against their elders. Their defenses are up. They don't want to have anything to do with the leadership of the church. But in many cases, the Lord uses others within the church. And James clearly has that expectation. It might be any of you. 
It could be any of you, which means you need to be ready. You need, first of all, to be prayerful in case you have the opportunity. Hopefully, these people are on your heart and mind and you're thinking about them. You need to be prayerful about the situation. Second of all, you need to be discerning so that you yourself are not led astray. You don't need to be duped when you encounter these people. You don't need to be caught up in whatever they're caught up in. You need to know and understand the spiritual issues Not be wrapped up in the self-pity that so often goes along with those who wander from the truth. And you need to be, thirdly, you need to be courageous. You need to be strong in the Lord. You need to be willing to speak the truth in a loving way. You need to be willing not just to show sympathy and give a shoulder to cry on, though that is certainly important. That's an important kind of love for us to show. Galatians, you remember, tells us, that if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we need to be spiritual, which means we need to be guided by the Spirit, or we need to be operating by the fruits of the Spirit, which Paul outlines there in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, and gentleness. But we ultimately have a responsibility not just to sympathize, we have a responsibility to restore. And so we have to speak the truth. And that takes courage. It's a temptation just to be a sounding board rather than a true instrument of the Lord in their lives. But ultimately, you have to remind these people of the very things that James has already told us. You need to remind them that when they fall into trials, that they need to count it joy. They need to welcome it because it's perfecting their faith. You need to remind them that God only sends good and perfect gifts down from above. You need to remind them that faith without works is dead. You need to remind them that the tongue is a world of evil setting on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. You need to remind them that the source of quarrels and fights is actually their own desires and their own cravings. You need to remind them that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You need to remind them, as as James told us in James 5.8, to establish their hearts for the coming of the Lord and not to grumble against others and to trust in His ultimate justice. These are the ways that you seek to restore them. These are the ways that you try to turn them back to the Lord. Turn them back from straying from the truth. They've walked away from the church. They've walked away from the gospel. They've walked away from the truth. And you need to turn them back. You need to convert them. You might say, that's strong language. I mean, are you saying that they're not Christians because they left the church? Well, The language that James uses here is strong. Epistrepho, turning them back. It's a word that in the context of physical movement can can refer to returning to where you originated from. But in a spiritual sense, it's used over and over and over again of converting people. Luke 3, 9. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. First Thessalonians 1, 
you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Talking about the Thessalonians' conversion experience there. So these people may have been involved with the church for any number of years. They might have prayed a prayer of salvation. They might still consider themselves a Christian, just someone who stopped going to church or stopped being so fastidious about uh, about the Scripture or about their Christian life or whatever it might be. They might just look at themselves maybe, or maybe you look at them as just someone who is who is backslidden or whatever. But James uses this language of salvation, of conversion, of calling them to genuine repentance and salvation. Maybe they were saved and they're just temporarily confused, but the ultimate indicator is how they respond to the truth when you share it with them. How do they respond to the truth? Which takes us to the second point James gives us that presses us into pursuing those who wonder. First of all, recognizing that you have a part to play, that you have a stewardship in this area. But secondly, James tells us in verse 20, we must sense the magnitude of the outcome, the magnitude of what's at stake. There are, in other words, eternal consequences, literally life and death. And James frames it that way in verse 20. If you're the one who is pursuing the person who's gone astray, James says he wants you to know, he wants you to be clear, he wants you to have confidence in this point, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. This is, in other words, This is about salvation. It's about salvation from death, eternal death. It's about covering a multitude of sins. And you can't underestimate then what is at stake. And this language is very clear. James uses this, we might even say Old Testament language, which established this metaphor of covering over sins. David says it in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Proverbs picks up the language and uses the same kind of terminology for forgiveness when it talks about covering sins. Paul quotes it in Psalms. Peter uses it. James uses it. All these references are speaking about forgiveness. And so what James is saying here is not suggesting that you're covering up their sins in the terms of sweeping it under the carpet or or ignoring it or any of that. If there's sin, it needs to be dealt with. But James is also reminding you that you are extending the gospel of God's reconciling grace to them. You're an ambassador for Christ, offering them the forgiveness of Christ, reminding them that His grace is abundant. It's abundant. It can cover not just sins, but a multitude of sins. Probably acknowledging that these people have gone far. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Those who profess Christ and turned away are are bearing much greater guilt. They're in much greater threat of judgment. We we referenced this earlier, but Hebrews 10.29, he also says that those who go on sinning after having received the knowledge of the truth, he says, how much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So you're going to the person and they probably are laden down already with a sense of guilt. They're probably already under the impression that they are not going to be welcomed back either by the church or by God, but you're going to them with the message of God's grace that covers a multitude of sins. doesn't matter how great the sin is. The guilt might be atrocious. The grieving of the Spirit, the outraging of the Spirit might be huge. But James says that they can still be restored. And he obviously wants you to contemplate this. Know this. Understand this. Ponder this. Think about this. In fact, this is the primary command in the whole section. These two verses, this is the primary verb. This is the main point. Surrounded by all these conditional statements, the primary mandate is for you to ponder, for you to think, for you to understand what's going on in these kinds of situations. Now, I suppose James tells us that because we have a tendency to want to minimize these situations. We want to minimize the sense of danger. We want to minimize what's going on. Maybe we want to sort of adopt the excuses that are thrown up in our face by those who've wandered from the truth. Or perhaps we want to just sort of label it as a passing mood or a phase or some quirk of personality or some issue of personal preference. They've wandered from the truth, from the fellowship of the church, and they just think that they need a break or... They're just in a season of busyness or whatever. But James wants you to understand something clearly. Let the one know. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering saves his soul. That's serious language. Serious language. James obviously doesn't believe that you have given enough thought to this. He doesn't believe that you take proper account. He doesn't think that you contemplate the issue enough. These aren't matters of personal preference. These aren't optional matters. These are spiritual issues. These are issues of the soul. These are issues of spiritual life and death. These are eternal issues. Issues of magnitude. And they may not always manifest themselves that way. The person who strays often goes away as quietly as they possibly can. They often hold on to some sort of form of religion. They often still claim to believe in God, at least initially. They're just busy or they need some time. They need change or they just need to deal with some some, uh, personal issues, some internal issues, but they never want to admit that these are issues of eternal life and death. But James wants you to ponder the pathway of the wayward. He wants you to understand what's at stake. And so he uses this word, save. The word is sozo. 
the most common word in the Scripture for spiritual salvation. These are issues of salvation as they begin to draw into question their faith. Given the context and the language of forgiveness and the multitude of sins being covered, I think James, when he talks about death here, he's not talking about just some sort of external danger, although that is certainly possible in so many cases, perhaps most cases, those who profane the name of Christ, they profess to believe and then walk away from the truth. They often find themselves in a kind of spiral of self-destruction. They find themselves under the judgment of God or they simply begin to face the full consequences of all their sinful choices, the fruits of their anger or the fruits of their pride or the fruits of their greed or their lust or whatever it might be. They begin to face the outward consequences of that. And so your actions and your intervention in their life might actually spare them some of the heartache and pain, the ill effects of all that. But James primarily has in mind not the physical side, but the spiritual side. The spiritual death and spiritual forgiveness and spiritual restoration. And the most important issues are not the external issues that your former friends and colleagues might be so focused on. It's the issue of their spiritual state. Whether they want to admit it or not, their behavior shows the threat of eternal punishment. They're giving evidence of the fact that they perhaps don't truly belong to Christ. And so you have to point out that danger to them regarding their soul. James has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire... And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the end result. Undealt with sin. Sin that is entertained and sin that is accommodated and sin that is cherished and sin that is exalted and sin that is allowed to enslave you. The end result is death, spiritual death, sometimes physical death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins, it shall die. James says, you need to know this. You need to know that those who wander from the truth, those who go astray from the truth, It doesn't matter what their excuse is. It doesn't matter how they self-describe their situation. It doesn't matter what kind of smokescreen they throw up. They're wandering from the truth. They, They profess to be a believer, but their soul's in danger. Their soul is in danger. It might be a friend. It might be a spouse. It might be a son or a daughter. It might be a, a grandchild. It might just be an old pal, a long-standing friend in the church who after so many years of what seemed like genuine faith 
have just been drawn away by the cords and the snares of sin. And so James says you need to contemplate. You need to realize what's at stake. This is what I want you to know. That when you go after that person, when you go after that sinner who's wondering, you are engaged in evangelistic work. You are engaged in bringing a soul back from death. You're engaged in a work that has tremendous magnitude. It's going to cover a multitude of sins. Those sins which on one hand are going to be detrimental to the person. On the other hand, they're going to be, they're going to be dishonoring to the Lord. They, they, these are people who once professed faith in Christ and, and they're described over and over in Scripture as trampling underfoot the Son of God and dishonoring His name and bringing Him into reproach. So you're engaged in this work of not only reconciling this brother, but you're engaged in this work of even defending the name of Christ, the glory of Christ, the honor of Christ. James says, I want you to think about that. Let the person know That when he brings back a sinner, he saves a soul from death. James is pressing you into service. He's rallying you to the charge. He's urging you to understand the sense of urgency and magnitude. He's reminding you that you have a share of responsibility in all of this. So the question is simple. I mean, do you know anyone like this? Do you know anyone who used to come to church and now they don't? Do you know anyone who used to talk about living for Christ and now they live in disregard of Him? Do you know anyone who has strayed from the truth? Well, James has equipped you with everything you need to talk to them. Everything that you have to engage in, in terms of their difficulties, their trials, their faith that is without works, their, their supposed sort of bitterness against God for tempting them, their anger against someone else who's disappointed them, their quarrels, their fights, their whatever, their love of the world. James deals with all of it. It's right here. You just need to hear the call, the call of the Lord on your life, the responsibility that you have, the share of the task to call Him back. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this reminder, simple, straightforward, and challenging. Are we our brother's keeper? Indeed, we are, Lord as you have entrusted to us the responsibility of calling those who've wandered from the faith. Help us then, equip us with hearts that are weighed down and burdened in prayer. Minds that are clear and discerning as it relates to the issues of truth. With courage 
to understand our role and to speak when we find ourselves in the appropriate situation. Equip us, Lord, to be instruments used for your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.